Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Global Flows. He writes under the CapitalFlowResearch.com website, where he shares macroeconomic and financial market analysis, and also provides specific trade ideas based on his analysis. He casts an extremely wide net and writes about a variety of different markets and asset classes. His goal is to find information that contains an asymmetrical edge so he can leverage it in financial markets. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here with you today. Thanks for coming on. So how'd you first get interested in investing? Kind of by accident. I think uh, I originally was just reading some books really broadly, happened to read some books on the market. And then from there, just kind of started going the, down the rabbit hole. And it's actually interesting because just because of uh, what your focus is on value, I remember when I first started, you kind of, you know, you kind of just start out by looking up some books online or things like that. And so I looked up who the investors were. I didn't even know who Warren Buffett was at the time. And, you know, I look him up and you look at like, what what are the books that he says to read? And he's just like, oh, read Security Analysis and Wealth of Nations. And I was just like, okay. So I bought both and I read all of them. Like, I still have my Security Analysis thing. It's like, what, like the brick? I read all of it and I didn't yeah, understand much of it. Gigantic, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I probably shouldn't have like started out reading those. Honestly, I'm not sure what, <laughs> I mean, like, uh, it's probably not the greatest thing to start with, but and then I read Wealth of Nations, which was also just like super dry. But I think those were a couple of the first books I read. And I kind of started reading some of the more value stuff because those are like the popular ones, right? And yeah, he, he recommends Intelligent Investor, and which is a little bit more accessible, but it's still kind of yeah. dry. And then yep. security analysis is very dense. Yep. <laughs> it's very rough to get through. Like I treated it almost like a textbook, like I was taking a class. Yep. And yeah, and there's a lot of very kind of dated material in security analysis. The newer, con the one I read was the 08 version, which okay. the parts I enjoyed the most were actually the, they had commentary in there from like yep. Seth and another yep. new investors or newer investors. So I, I enjoyed those sections a little bit more, but yeah, there's still some nuggets of wisdom in there, but a lot of it is very dense and very dated. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a value guy necessarily now in, in the, in the value investor type of type of way that maybe Buffett or some of the other, you know, value guys would consider themselves. But I think when I look back on my learning journey, a lot of it had to do with just why markets were moving. And in my mind, the explanation that, okay, well, this, the price is just deviating from fair value and it's just, it's just random or whatever. It wasn't really clicking for me. So I spent a lot more time trying to figure out macro and why exactly certain things were were moving and you you know begin to see why you know the 
perform an attribution analysis on a stock or an asset and say, what are all the different drivers of this? How much of it is the fundamentals of the company? How much of it is the sectors? How much of it is just, you know, broad beta and things like that. And so I, over the years, I just spent a lot more time focusing on, well, focusing on macro. And then that took me to bonds and FX. And I would say my main focus now is on the fixed income and FX side. Those are the things that I probably trade the most. I I probably run 80% of the trades that I run in futures now. And so that I've I've kind of gone away from individual stocks over the more recent future. But one of my goals actually in 2024 is to be able to run a lot more trades in bottom-up equities. So I'm actually working with someone right now and we're going to try to start someone who has a lot of institutional experience trading uh, single name equities and bottom up equity. And we're going to try to run a lot more trades and share the research and publish it on the sub stack and things like that. So yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm at right now. And uh, it's been a, it's been a fun journey so far. Cool. And so you have a very macro focus on the research website. So what is your current process? What are some of the things that you look at that are key? Yeah, so my process would be aggregating all of the different, I'm trying to, at a, at a very general and broad level, aggregating all of the different signals I see in the economy and the market and trying to you know systematically connect them together. So I go through all major economic data I go through a lot of countries. I have models running in a lot of countries, but if we just, you know, stick with the US, you know, I run systematic models on all economic data and model that and have views on that and then kind of determine from that what market expectations are pricing and how that's connecting with price action and vol and things like that and take a typically a top-down view and then try to figure out some idiosyncratic things within a specific asset or a, a specific trade. And then, yeah, my main focus is discretionary alpha. I run a lot of systematic models, but I, you know, a lot of the trades that I run are discretionary. So I have some systematic strategies running as well, but I would say the main focus is, is discretionary. Okay. And what are the key markets and asset classes that you focus your research process on? A lot of it is bonds right now and you know just just broad US interest rates that's a lot of that's just been because of what's been happening there over the past couple of years and I've just been trading those a lot also FX and then I think that's just become a much bigger you know focus for everyone but I would say I I spend the most time in US bonds and then I'm in the process of trying to branch out and begin running research and more capital in other countries of the world as well. Because I like to try to develop some type of structural macro view where I say, what's going to happen over the next 10 years in all of these different countries? And if I think capital is going to flow into or out of specific countries on a persistent basis over multi-year period, then I'll start doing research on that country, understanding the asset classes, start running a couple of trades here and there, 
and just try to build up in a, a knowledge base and experience set in that country so that I can begin to, you know, branch out there. And so I, when I think about research or developing expertise in a specific market, I just consider that time that I spend on that research as a bet. And I want that bet to be well-informed. And so I try to make that based on some type of macro view. And so I've, I've, I've done a little bit of that on the Substack where I'll publish country primers, where I do a breakdown of the country and I pull together a lot of the research I've done on it. And so I've done some of that research in, in, or I've done two country primers so far, one on Mexico, one on Japan. And the next one I'm going to do is likely on Brazil. And those are two or a couple places that I'm interested in and I'm trying to spend more time understanding and yeah, hopefully make those trades a larger percentage of my risk in the future. Gotcha. So with your focus on the US bond market over the last few years, how have you been positioned within the US bond market? It's been a wild story. I mean, you had ZERP, you had 0% interest rates. The Fed did what no one expected and they actually responded to that and they dramatically increased in interest rates. Now it looks like they're starting to come down and the Fed might start easing this year. You know, so where have you been positioned over the last few years with bonds? And then kind of where do you see things going with the bond market? Yeah. So I think the the very interesting thing about bonds is that, especially US bonds, is that there is this sentiment in markets. And I think it rubs off on all of us. I don't think any of us are immune to it. But there's just a sentiment in markets that you don't short bonds, right? And there's a lot of truth to it because you have to overcome this hurdle of the carry, right? So you have to take a negative carry to be able to short the bond mm -hmm. and and have that exposure. But it's very interesting because when you have an inflationary bear market, that's one of the very few things that actually offsets correlations in your portfolio, right? So it's a very interesting thing when you kind of see the different trend guys actually put on positions there. And so coming into 2022 when the that you know bond bear market and you know equity bear market started, I think I it made sense for me on the equity side to be short. And I had that view at the time. I wasn't super short bonds at the time. It didn't click right away, and you know there there is definitely people smarter than me that that got it earlier. At the time, I wasn't short bonds. I think it took me a couple weeks to a month to to for it to click. That I knew I shouldn't have been long bonds, right? I think that was like really clear to me. But then I didn't. It didn't click to go short until a little bit after that, and then. I began to have a short bond view. And then coming out of, we we kind of moved into SVB and you had that pop. And I started the Substack, I believe that month, that March of 2023. I started the Twitter and the Substack then. And since the SVB, I've basically had a bearish view on bonds. And then I went neutral after the Treasury announced the... I went bearish on bonds kind of after the SVB thing. I stayed bearish kind of through the bear steepener. And then 
once they announced the the shift in October that caused the bond rally over the past three months, I basically went neutral. And then in December, I went bullish. And so when I look out now, I think about a couple things for the bond market. One is, you know, it's the rally we've seen in bonds has not primarily been driven by a recession trade. And I think that's what people have been missing. They they saw the sell-off in equities and they said it's a recession. And then they saw the rally in bonds and they said it's a recession when it's just been a, a liquidity impulse from Goldilocks in my mind. So moving forward, I we have this interesting situation where you have Goldilocks where growth is positive, inflation is falling, and the forward curve is pricing cuts. And I think Howell has just confirmed that he will cut rates even if there isn't a recession as long as inflation is falling. And I think that was a really key thing that that shifted market sentiment on December, I think it was 13th of last year. And now in my mind, you know, I'm bullish bonds. The only qualification is how do you trade the speed of rate cuts? Because we first priced a cut in March, and that was a bit aggressive, right? And to, to get that priced out to undo that market pricing, you probably needed a little bit of pullback in bonds, which we had. So now from this point, I would say over the next year and into 2024, over the next couple of quarters, I think a lot of the trading in bonds is running longs and trying to align yourself with how aggressive the speed of rate cuts is because I, I think we're we're skewed to the downside in terms of rate cuts and interest rates and it's just about that speed of rate cuts and I think that's going to be dependent on you know where we come in with some inflation data and you know how cyclicals are moving and things like that so you mentioned your so you're saying you're long bonds but I also, it seems like you don't think we're going to have a recession. So most people who are long bonds think we're going to have a recession and the Fed will have to respond to that. It doesn't sound like that's your thesis. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, if we just look historically, right? Like bonds can rally in recessions, but that's not the only environment they can right. rally in, right? Gotcha. Like I think that's the key thing. I mean, just for example, I mean, we saw a slowing growth in 2019, but we didn't have a recession, right? And then- right. Bonds rallied huge amount. Equities made all-time highs. You had this huge liquidity impulse. I think it just goes back to understanding bonds correctly, right? Like, if we have a negative growth impulse, that can cause bonds to rally. But that's a lot of that is because money is being pulled out of other assets and put into bonds at the expense of other assets. Right, so it, I, you know, if inflation just falls back down to two percent and it stays there, right, and the Fed is going to cut rates, you know, I don't think we need a recession for bonds to rally. And I think that's the whole Goldilocks thing. And I think that's when what's been messing. I mean, it's been there's been uncertainty on everyone's part. It's not it's not like one person has kind of it's not like I've figured it out or one person has figured it out, and. They have a really clear view, but I think that's something that a lot a lot of people aren't thinking about. They think it has to be a recession, or it 
uh, for that bond rally. That It's like that 2020 bias where you have this blowout in bonds to the upside and equities to the downside. And everyone's just kind of biased that that has to happen for a reset to take place. Gotcha. So it sounds like you're kind of anticipating, correct me if I'm wrong, you're anticipating an environment almost like 96 to 98, like at that period of time, bonds rates went down, but the economy didn't necessarily enter a recession and it kind of persisted for a while. We had a Goldilocks moment where growth was good, inflation was low, interest rates were coming down. Is, is that right? Do you do you kind of see an environment like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that that's a great parallel. I don't know how long it's going to last. I think it could, you know, my the main risk I think about in my mind is that Goldilocks can set the preconditions for a reacceleration in inflation. So I kind of laid this out in the macro report that I just wrote. And the whole idea is that there's a couple different scenarios I'm thinking through. But if you have rate cuts in Goldilocks and it's happening during resilient growth, if there are any pent-up inflationary preconditions or forces, then those rate cuts into resilient growth can cause a reacceleration in inflation. So that's something I'm worried more about a reacceleration in inflation in the second half of 2024 than a recession right now, because we have those rate cuts happening. So yeah, I think Goldilocks is taking place. How long, how long that persists for? Really tough to know, but I kind of know that right now I... I, I want to be long Goldilocks and the trades that are associated with that. So what are the trades that are associated with being long Goldilocks? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's long bonds. It's short the dollar, long equities, um, uh, sh- long the yen, and long metals. And let's see, I've been long some energy as well. So I've been long that gas. I was long crude for a little bit, and commodities are a bit of a toss-up here. But those were those I would say are the main thing is I want to be long equities and long bonds and long the metals and then short the dollar. And I I think I'm probably going to have those positions on into you know at least another quarter unless things change because I think I think the dollar can move if we're just talking about the like the DXY. I mean, I would not be surprised to see the dollar move down to 96 or 98 and, and make new lows there before before we have a, a little bit of a, another regime shift. Interesting. So you think that the dollar is going down. Usually in those environments, international stocks tend to outperform. International has underperformed for a long period of time. Do you think that that's changing? Yeah. So I I don't view... I view it as a very specific trade in terms of international. So I wouldn't just go broad, long international. I actually think you want to do long, short international or things like that. So I actually like I like a lot of the South America equities. I don't want to be long China unless maybe I'm playing some type of bounce or something like that. But it's not like I don't want to have an allocation there. So I think when I, when I think about international, I want to be long the beneficiaries of deglobalization, like a lot of the South America, I mean, just Mexico, Brazil, things like that. Maybe, you know, India is fine as well. And then I would just be careful because I think there's still some countries that are not going to experience the, the positive sides of deglobalization. And I, I put that caveat because 
so many international ETFs or international exposures have China in them as a pretty large weighting, and I don't want to be long China right now. So that's that's what I would say with the only qualification. Gotcha. So Mexico is very interesting. I recently spoke to another investor, Ian Bezik, and he's a stock picker, but he's very bullish Mexico. His thesis is that with the situation breaking down with China, that more of the supply chain is going to move to Mexico and the demographics are also very strong in Mexico. Do you do you share that bullish view on Mexico? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you have this really amazing situation setting up in Mexico where you have this geopolitical risk with China, you have a lot of these, you know, issues surrounding, you know, their relationship and tension and then just all the issues with supply chains and things like that. And what we've seen over the past couple of years is the U.S. is now importing more from Mexico than they are from China, right? And on top of that, Mexico actually has the demographic infrastructure to fill all of those that production base with individuals and working, you know, working age employees to run all of that production capacity and export all of those goods and services to the US. On top of that, we have NAFTA. And so we have a trade agreement with them that helps flows a lot and helps a lot of deals and things like that. And then on top of all of that, we just have geographic proximity to them. And so you have this kind of amazing thing that's stacking up where you have, if you look at Mexican GDP, they have their investment line item is, I think it's up 25% year over year in real terms. And so they have this huge investment that's taking place in their economy, and it's likely to continue for a you know prolonged period of time. You can actually go on to Peter Zion's YouTube channel, and he's actually gone down there to Mexico City and done a bunch of videos, and he has some cool commentary. I kind of like following him. But yeah, I, I think that's why you've seen the Mexican stock market, Mexico stock market rally and the peso rally at the same time, right? And so I think that's a really key signal to watch as you're kind of monitoring interest rate differentials and things like that. Gotcha. Now, are you worried about anything in Mexico that could kind of imperil that thesis? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely risks. So much of Mexico and you know countries like that have a lot of insider information and not in, not just with companies but just in terms of the politics you know i think there is issues in terms of political risk and then also maybe a little bit of the you know corruption and cartels and things like that but i think a lot of it has to do with the 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 structure of the government and I think you need to be monitoring that closely on a longer term basis over the next five years to see how that progresses. I think someone who, what's the book called? Oh, it's called Why Nations Fail. There's a great book and it basically talks about how institutions are one of the large, the, the main causal factors for a country succeeding and failing. And it says it's not just geography. And it, it gives the example of, you know, North and South Korea, basically the same geography. One side is, you know, totally, totally screwed. And the other side is incredibly prosperous. 
and it all has to do with the institutions that are set up there, the institution differential. And then same thing kind of with uh, some stuff at the U.S.-Mexican border and things like that. So I think there's a lot of positive forces, but I think those those risks definitely need to be monitored because it's not the same as the U.S. market where there is a you know a lot more regulation and yeah we have we have politicians trading on insider information and stuff like that but it's not as extreme in my opinion as as down in Mexico so that's that would be something that I'm that I'm still concerned about and I'm watching and then also some I think there's just some risks with transportation like they really need to increase their ability to transport things I think that's happening right we're seeing some progression there but if we don't have really strong transportation lines from Mexico to be able to import to the U.S., then you're going kind to of have this production base without the ability to transport. Not that it can't right now, but I just also want to see some improvement there as well. But those couple things are all big picture things that I want to see progression in over the next couple of years. Gotcha. So you also mentioned Peter Zahan. I read his book, very interesting stuff. So Peter is very uh, bearish on China. He believes that they're facing a demographic situation. He also mentions that they don't have a supply of energy and arable land to grow food. So it sounds like you you agree with him, basically, that, that China is in a bad position. Yeah, I would I would share a lot of views with him. I really like trying to connect a lot of those views to economic data and markets. And so when I when I think about China now, you know, I'm cautious being super bearish in terms of like running trades just because it's so, you know, if you're going to bet on like a deval or something like that or like their current account falling apart, real tough to to do that. I think there's just so many, you know, with how they have their their balance of payments set up and how they I want to say manipulate but how they you know manage their currency real tough to like take a view where I'm just going to be short the yuan betting on a collapse right so probably not the greatest place to be like structurally long in my mind but you know I'm probably you know really tough to bet on the collapse you know we we see we see you know the evergrand stuff and all the real estate problems and things like that and they're fine still, right? So when when that happens, it's kind of, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in like 10 years, China's kind of just still where they are, right? So I, I, it's hard for me to get super, super bearish until I see some more confirmation or some more catalysts. But if that unwinds and has more issues, that that will most certainly reverberate across global markets. Gotcha. And do you think that China is going to, they seem to be signaling that they're going to become more militaristic, like they're expanding their Navy, they're threatening Taiwan. Do you think that that's a real problem or is that just something that's sort of been blown out of proportion? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not too worried about the Navy side. I mean, you know, the U S still has the upper hand on that and they'll have the upper hand for, you know, decades. The Taiwan thing, that's tough. You know, I view it as a little bit of a toss up. I have some, you know, market signals set up for that in terms of some spreads and exchange rates and, you know, some other kind of couple signals that I'm watching in terms of market signals that I just kind of have always up and I check them every, you know, so often and have some alerts set on them. 
but real tough to, I mean, have a strong view on that. Everyone kind of thought it was a much higher probability after the Ukraine invasion. Real tough for me to have like a strong view on that right now from a market's perspective. There's probably a geopolitical strategist that has a really, you know, well-oiled view on that, that that could probably explain it better than me. But what I would say is the main thing I would be concerned about is more clandestine abilities that maybe Russia or China has across the world. Because I think so much of, so much of, you know, just we're seeing this with the Ukraine war, so much of that, you know, deployments, U.S. deployments or any kind of active involvement is just not politically palpable today. Like people just don't like it. And so I just think you're seeing, you're going to see a lot of shifting from outright deployments from any, any country to a lot more clandestine work and you're going to have a lot more, you know, just just clandestine operations in different countries by different countries' agents. And so I a lot of this is based on like unknowns. Like we just don't know how many, you know, like let's say Chinese agents are in the US or something like that. But, you know, we've seen stuff where like a lot of people have been arrested or they've shut down like there was like a Chinese police station in like New York or something like that. And, you know, when I see stuff like that, I just think, okay, that's the stuff that we see. What's the stuff that we're not seeing on, and on top of all of that, we have kind of like a border that's open where anyone with, you know, any moderate degree of skill in, uh, you know, evading people, invading authorities can get in. So I, I think we have, it's, you know, it's interesting, a little, a little off topic, but I was reading this book, called tribe by a guy named Sebastian something. And what he was kind of talking a lot about internal unity and having a tribe and a brotherhood and things like that. And how so many times in U S history, when we go to war or when we have some type of attack, the U S really bands together. And what, one of these comments he made was really interesting. He goes, it's almost as if, if an enemy truly knew how to, attack the US, they wouldn't attack them directly because they knew the US would band together. Right. And I just I found that so interesting because if I were China, if I were Russia or something like that, I would not be doing a frontal attack because America would kind of wake up and band together and kind of the some of the in a garbage uh, politics that we're dealing with would just get swept under the rug. I don't know. In my mind they kind of know not to do that. So yeah. it, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's kind of an interesting tension I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I agree that I'm sure China is smart enough to realize they couldn't defeat the US one-on-one -on -one in a military confrontation. At the same time, I think if they ever attacked, directly attacked the United States, it would unite the country in a way we haven't seen. And it's probably in their interest to keep us divided like we are right now. Like I definitely think across the political spectrum, everybody would be on the same page. It would almost be like after 9-11, I think, if China yeah. actually yep. attacked us. <laughs> everybody would be on, on board for you know, taking them all militarily, and it's a fight they would lose. So realizing that, I agree with you. They, they're probably in a situation where they would look for other ways to destabilize the United States. And I think it sounds like you're talking about a cyber attack of some kind, which I, I agree is probably the biggest threat that they that they could pose right now. 
Yeah, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't really know the answer to that because I don't have a great read on like cyber capabilities on either side. From some stuff I've read, I, it seems like the U.S. has a strong position, but I, I would probably withhold judgment on that. The one thing I would say is interesting that I've been thinking about recently, and I'll connect this to markets so we don't kind of get too in, so it's not just like a political discussion, but I've been reading this book called uh, Like War, kind of like a like on a Twitter or whatever. It's by P.W. Singer, I think, and another guy. And it goes over the weaponization of social media, and it goes through examples of it and how it's been used in outright conflicts in the Middle East and then in other countries, and then also how it's been used in clandestine ways or to manipulate elections or things like that. And so I find... I find that side very interesting because those those geopolitical attentions are beginning to shift how people think about their supply chains, how they think about investment, how they think about hiring, I mean things like that. I mean I think one of the the main things that you see is just here in America I think you you're seeing a lot more companies pop up or domestic investment or things like that, where you're going to buy something just because it's from America. And it's kind of like this badge of honor almost. I mean, I think like the, you know, the, the Jocko Willinks of the world, you know, starting like a clothing brand like Origin and, you know, him very, you know, kind of championing, championing that you can, you know, buy your clothes in the US and people, you know, they're making more money right now. They're, you know, you know, doing better, nominal real wages are rising. And they're going to say, you know, I want to support the US. I want to be part of this, you know, movement and brand. And now social media, you know, brings me this connection to this tribe a little bit more. And I want to buy their stuff. So I, I think, I think if you have more of a shift in that spending and consumption pattern, that can really impact things with, with how trade flows and imports and exports work. So that's something interesting I'm I'm monitoring as well and we'll see how much of a pervasive impact it has. Yeah, super super interesting. So it sounds like you also believe that in that same kind of Peter Zeihan thesis that you think that global trade is going to become more constrained that the movement that we've seen over the last I don't know 80 years where trade gets more and more liberalized over time. It sounds like you agree with the idea that that's reversing yeah, I probably don't know. He 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 thinks it's going to collapse and revert to like a long-term mean. Like if you look at global trade as a I think it's I think it's global trade as a percentage of global GDP. It's been going up a lot, right, over the past uh, 100 years. And I think he believes I could be wrong, um maybe he you correct me, but it seems to me when I read his stuff that he thinks there's going to be this huge reversion. We're going to move back down to like 19, you know, pre-1950 levels or something like that. That doesn't seem like a base case to me. You know, I don't I don't know if we're going to have this huge unwinding of like global trade like that. I think there's going to be a lot of shifts and consumption is going to shift and we're going to see a lot of changes on the margin and maybe we'll see the percentage as a whole decrease. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I have enough conviction to really say we're going to see an unwinding of that because if we do that's like 
a reversion of a lot other things of just wealth and you know energy being able to go to these different countries industrialization all these countries being able to industrialize and a lot of other things and i'm not sure if that's something we would we would really see and we're we kind of almost at just in terms of it seems like markets and cycles that deglobalization narrative maybe needs to be shocked a little bit you know it, you know people need to kind of maybe calm down just a little bit on it and and then maybe we'll decrease a little bit more but that's i, I would view a little more a moderate opinion on trade as a percentage of gdp than probably peter zion yeah, that seems like an extreme idea that we'd go back to pre nineteen fifty levels. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, I don't know if you said that. It just that's what I get kind of get. Yeah, from him. yeah, if that makes sense. I don't want to. I don't want to put words on his mouth. No, but no, that's no. What I, it I seems you. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, or what? What's your sense of that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm. I have no idea. I, I think it makes kind of sense to me from a political perspective in the United States that there seems to be a movement on the right and the left where they're both very skeptical of global integration, where you have a, this big protectionist element of the right really gaining force where like I'm old enough to remember in the 90s, right wingers were very pro-free trade and that seems to have totally reversed itself. So there's that aspect to it. It also seems like there's definitely, I think that the trade situation with China has definitely kind of proven itself to be toxic. I don't really understand why China is retreating from that. Like It seems to me like China has benefited tremendously from global trade. They've benefited tremendously from having better relations with the United States from like 1980 to 2010. So I don't understand why they would want to turn their back on all of that. It seems like it was a good deal for everybody. We got cheap goods. They got unprecedented prosperity. So I don't really get it. But yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see it happening where trade could retreat. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that sentiment of of active participation in like uh, from you know maybe the left or the right because i think that connects with trades right because you have people that are running for office right now no one really likes whatever this is my opinion no you know nikki haley probably not going to win right but she's like the only one that is really like pushing that like we need to go invade countries and you're just like what everyone else is just like no and like let's not go anywhere let's not risk people's lives you know just think about that view forget about all the politics and those people whoever gets into office or whatever they're going to do with that that's going to have direct implications for defense stocks right and so i think as we move into an election year there's a couple things i'm thinking about right because if you have someone get in who's going to try to stop a lot of government spending or things like that, like that can really drag on GDP if if they actually can, can block bills on government spending and things like that. And, you know, the kind of, I mean, there's a couple of trades that I always just think about in my mind, but if you, any, anytime you have any type of geopolitical risk, where it seems like the the U.S. is going to be involved or not involved or things like that. You want to trade defense stocks. And then if there's any domestic social volatility, you basically want to get long gun stocks and or, or play for a reversion or something like that. 
which is interesting. You should go back and check out just firearm stocks during 2020 and also the so 2020, the election year and also January 6th, because they had really interesting price action when that was happening. And it's kind of a helpful metric to think of as a signal. And also if you want to trade it or something like that. So those are kind of some of the other things I'm thinking about as we're moving into an election year and how those are going to have implications and things like that. Yeah, the kind of classic trade seems to be that when a Democrat administration gets in, you go long gun stocks because all of the Republicans think that <laughs> guns are going to get banned. And whenever someone starts talking about cutting the defense budget, you go long defense stocks yeah, because yeah, yeah. everybody thinks that they're going to end the military industrial complex and it never actually ends. <laughs> this seemed like the two classic trades for guns and defense stocks. Yeah, it's funny, man. It's 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 how it works. It's how it works. So right on. Yeah. So another country you've written about is Japan. So Japan, interesting situation. A lot of the stocks seem very cheap. At the same time, they have a poor demographic situation. So what's your take on Japan? So when I when I think about Japan, there's two major things I think about. The first one is just in terms of their foreign domestic domestic investment in U.S. bonds and how much of an impact that has on their markets. So I'm stealing this phrase from Weston Nakamura. He's uh, on Twitter at Across the Spread. But I just remember him saying once, Japan is like, you know, like the OPEC of the U.S. Treasury market. You know, OPEC has this huge impact on the oil market. They're a big player, maybe not the biggest player, you know, but, you know, or maybe not the the only player, but they're like, they're important. They move the market around. Same thing with Japan and U.S. treasuries. And so I think you have this really interesting signal from Japan where they have always tried to get inflation up, and now it's finally happening. They're finally getting it to like 2%, their inflation target. I think we're we're running a little bit above that right now. I haven't forget the exact numbers. But now... We're in a spot where the BOJ seems like they're shifting. After we've shift from shift over to the, to the new governor to Ueda, there's a regime shift taking place where you're getting these signals from the central bank that they're going to likely be tightening monetary policy, and you are seeing this in their signals. Just for example, it used to be you know the JGB ten year. They had it at a specific level for yield curve control. Now they're doing like a range. And when when a central bank does that, that just tells me they're trying to inject a little bit more vol and uncertainty in the markets, right? Because it's tough to go from, I mean, you can do it, but it, it, when you go from pure yield curve control to nothing, then you can have markets blow out, credit rise, and and maybe issues underneath the surface. But they're just, you know, they're widening spreads a little bit. They're doing this, they're doing that. They're throwing statements out there. They're just randomly, well, I don't know if random, but just intervening in currency markets and not telling anyone. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny to come in some mornings and you see, you know, the the yen make a huge move in some direction. And then there's just like no news. And you're like, okay, well, that was the BOJ, but they didn't say anything. So you're like, okay, well, you know, th this is them trying to inject uncertainty in the market so that people are taking off some leverage, taking off some risk. And so when they do make a decision that 
you're not going to have some entity just blow out. So when I think about Japan, you know, I think you can have this scenario where you have a longer term trend to the upside in the yen if the BOJ begins to significantly shift their stance. And so, you know, Japan as a whole, I think they're doing a decent job at shifting and and adapting to their demographics, right? They're off they're uh, offshoring a lot of their processes. They're keeping all the valuable parts and high quality, you know, sections of their supply chain domestically and then offshoring a lot of the you know, parts that just kind of require manual labor and things like that. You can kind of go through a lot of their companies and break down the supply chain and they're offshoring a lot. That's, you know, I think very strategic and interesting because they can maintain a little bit of an advantage and they're not going to completely collapse. And then they can still maintain their savings for their, for their older population and, you know, the inflation that they have is not just going to completely destroy them, right? So I, I still think we're going to have an interesting environment for them. It's not going to be like the past because you're having this shift in the stance of the BOJ. But, you know, I think the, the, the Nikkei is going to probably make all-time highs soon. You know, we're kind of at that, those pre, you know, 90s bubble levels, and in the in the Nikkei, and it seems like there's a bit more sustainability in the rally in equities moving into 2024. I'm long the Nikkei right now. Uh, I think I think we'll probably have a breakout sometime this year. Wow. Well, everybody who invested in 1989 can get their money back now. I guess exactly. They'll be in the they'll be in the green. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that that one guy who who uh, bought real estate and in Japan or something like that. That was the the price of California or something like that. They're finally going to be in the green. Interesting. And Warren Buffett agrees with you. He he went long some uh, Japanese companies a few years ago. So super interesting. Yeah. So another thing I want to talk to you about was the oil market. So it sounds like you're bullish oil and commodities in general. Do you want to talk a little bit about that thesis? Yeah. I mean, I've been getting destroyed in the ags, so I don't know if I haven't been doing great <laughs> there. Well, it's because, you know, the ags right now are just kind of grinding in a range. You know, there's not not this huge impulse occurring that that's really trending. And so it's just a ton of mean reversion. So Probably not super clear view on the ags. I got long nat gas in the middle of December. I mean, almost at the almost at the lows, right right above the lows. I didn't like bottom ticket or anything. And we're you know we're seeing a bit of a trend up reversion, and I think that's actually significant, especially now that we're in winter, and you know we had that huge sell off into you know the winter months and things like that. So going back to the Goldilocks scenario. You know, if the Goldilocks begins to create the conditions for a reacceleration and in inflation, I want to be watching several things. One is just break-evens across bonds, you know, inflation swaps. Uh, and I want to watch that across all major U.S. or all G7 markets. And then the other thing I want to watch is just commodities, and especially oil and nat gas and, you know, the ags and things like that. Because if the Goldilocks begins to create that reacceleration and in inflation, then you'll have cuts priced in the forward curve while 
you know, inflation swaps are rallying a bit and commodities are rallying. And then, then maybe that that uh, that can shift how those cuts are getting priced and what the Fed thinks. So it seems to me that there's positive optionality to have some of those long energy trades in connection with the Goldilocks trades, maybe as kind of like a hedge. And I think they're at a great technical point here as well, where you, you, you know, I kind of got long and it seemed like there was a lot less downside because of the, the bearish moves they had made over the past three, six months. So I think another, you know, the, the other narrative too, is that there was a recession and that's why oil prices were going down and things like that. And I just thought that's a great fade as well. So I think there's so much support right now for that investment portion of US GDP, you know, because of the onshoring and construction spending and the shifts in the labor market that we're seeing with more people going toward blue collar jobs and construction spending and manufacturing spending and things like that, that you could, you know, see a pretty reasonable support in oil and not this, you know, pure collapse that you might have expected in in previous times where like the ism is below 50 right okay yeah that seems that sounds like another trade um warren buffett would agree with you on he's with his position in occidental he'd probably say it's not a better oil prices but it kind of is probably yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll have like a much like more sophisticated and refined refined view than me he'll be like well there's all these reasons and i was like oh man i don't know but uh yeah it's uh yeah he's long I think a lot of energy and a lot of Japanese banks, like he acquired a Japanese bank as well, right? Or what What was that? I think it was like a trade company, which was- Yeah, it was some financial has, services, right? Yeah, which has banking and insurance within it. I don't really know enough yeah. about it, but yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, when I when I think about oil prices, I just think we went from two to two extremes. We, we had the, the COVID low, the invasion high, the normalization since then. And now I don't think we're going to go back to either one of those extremes, but you probably want to play the range in between until, you know, until we have some clear impulse on the supply side or demand side, which I'm not, I'm not betting on the demand side changing very much. And then I'm not really an expert on the supply side besides, you know, just reading kind of the research that we all read. So Unless I see a clear impulse on the supply side from news and from you know something like an invasion or some some other kind of uh, you know meeting or data print, you know I'm probably not taking an extreme view in terms of oil breaking, you know below 65 or above 100. Hmm. Very interesting. So you know before we wrap up, are there any other topics or trends that you'd like to discuss? You know, I would say I'm very interested in a lot of these like financial service companies or I'd say I'd say you know companies in the financial sector that are like giving out like housing mortgages or kind of in the housing market or things like that and then also like home builders and things like that it it seems to me that there's a lot of support there in terms of the housing market and we just went through an interest rate cycle, interest rate hiking cycle, and housing's basically fine. I mean, I know people are going to pull anecdotal evidence out of somewhere, but everything, like nothing's nothing's really fallen apart. 
home prices are back at all-time highs. They've reaccelerated. And now we're cutting interest rates and the 30-year mortgage is going to go down. So I think about all of that and I just think we could see a I mean, home builders just made all-time highs, right, over the past couple months. Yeah, it's been it's been shocking. Yes. Certainly no one has really expected that to happen. But yeah, the the home builders are doing great. Real estate prices have held up in the face of these interest rate increases. So it definitely seems resilient. Yeah, when I mean when we go through the craziest hiking cycle in like, I don't know if it's history or whatever, but crazy hiking cycle. And you don't see the one thing that everyone would expect to fall apart. It just tells me that there's some like player bidding under there, right? Like, like it's just kind of like if you see a, if you're trading a stock and you see some massive size on the bid and it just keeps on bumping against them because they're taking that, you know, liquidity. Like, that's just what I think about on a cyclical basis. And if, if that's what we're seeing right now, you know, commercial real estate, sure, they have problems because all these institutions have debt that's five to 10 years and they had to roll it, right? But, you know, there's so much capital on the sidelines and private equity and everywhere else that I think all of that stuff is moving way more efficiently than it did in the past. And so, yeah, you'll have some distressed funds come up that scoop up that stuff. And, you know, that's not kind of, you know, falling apart. You know, I've talked to people... Uh, I can't I can't say exact names, but uh, you know, talking to people who are at regional banks in high, you know, that have you know huge balance sheets and that that manage the the CRE loan portfolios, and they're not worried, right? They're looking across things and they're saying things are okay, right? Like they're not falling apart. And when I look out, it seems like cuts are on the horizon. So. It's only going to kind of, you know, help a little bit. So I just think the housing market, you know, everyone is still so bearish 2008. You know, I, I mean, you know, there are people that sold because they thought everything was overvalued. What happens when those people are like, okay, I'm done renting. I want to get back in because we're going to move up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the bullish view would be that the demographics support it. So I think 1990 was our peak like year for births in the United States. So mm. all those people that were born in the late nineties or in the early nineties, late eighties, they're all kind of entering their mid thirties. And, you know, right. if you have, if you have a family and you, I mean, you don't really have an option of saying like, well, housing's too high. Like you kind of need a bigger home. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. I agreed. Yeah. And at the same time, I agree with you. Everybody, including me is definitely clouded by 2008 where you think recession if that's what's going to happen in real estate but if you look at a lot of other recessions it wasn't as catastrophic for residential real estate in the US sure yeah i mean it's you know i will be the first to say it's when you have a trading experience where you make or lose a lot of money it's very difficult for it not to bias you like every single person is in that situation and it's so hard to especially i at least for me, when you make a lot of money in a situation on a trade, then it's very hard to be like, okay, now I need to do the opposite. When you are just like, no, but I made like a huge, you know, amount of money in that one thing. It's it's very hard, especially if it's ingrained into a culture. And so we'll we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting. So well, thank you for coming on today. This was a very interesting conversation. What are the best ways to learn about you and read your content? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, 
the handles at, at global flows. And then if you go to capitalflowsresearch.com, you can see all the research and I'm publishing every there, every I'm publishing there every almost every day. I do a monthly macro report, monthly webinar, and then I have asset class reports on every major asset. And then I do a lot of just primers, you know, kind of going over big picture research. And my whole goal is, you know, I have this whole research process for, you know, doing big picture research, proactive research in other countries, you know, and then running trades. And I'm just trying to show that entire process. Like, what would it look like if you're trying to do the entire research and trading process? Because I think a lot of people just show one aspect. And I'm just trying to show kind of more of a practitioner's view around that. So, yeah. And I appreciate you having me on, man. This is a cool conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.